The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. And sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people. This is Arun Sudharman from The Homes Report. And we're here with the Echo Chamber, recording this one in Hong Kong. Uh, and very lucky to be joined by VP of Corporate Communications at Huawei, Mr. Walter Jennings. Walter, welcome to the Echo Chamber. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. There is actually an echo in this room as well, which makes me unreasonably excited. Um, so, Walter, you are a longtime friend of the Homes Report. We should say that first and foremost. You've spoken at our conferences um, and we're lucky to have known you for, for, for this length of time. You, of course, have worked in the industry um, for several years at uh, Gavin Anderson, uh, also at Fleischmann Hillard. Um, but for the last couple of years, uh, you've been with Huawei as their VP of Corporate Communications based in Shenzhen and Hong Kong. Um, so I wondered if you could maybe take us, uh, take us through uh, your career a little bit and, and I suppose the events leading up to your decision to join Huawei because it is, uh, it's a pretty unique role, I think, in the communications world. Uh, thank you very much, Arun. And yes, I've been a long-term fan of the Holmes Report. I started my career in New York City and um, had a little bit of wanderlust. I worked for Edelman Worldwide for seven years, and they gave me an opportunity to move to Sydney, Australia. I went down on a 12-month contract and stayed six years. Uh, since then, I have lived and worked in Australia, the US, Canada, France, Hong Kong, and now China. Uh, I am living in Hong Kong, but my role is based in Shenzhen, uh, which is just across the border. I was recruited into Huawei at a period of time when they were changing their communications team from international media affairs to corporate communications. And I think I took the job for the wrong reason because they didn't have a job description. They weren't sure what the role should be. They knew that they needed to change their communications, but they didn't know how. And would I be willing to come on board uh, without a job description and assist them in this transition, which I have been doing now for just over two years. So I'm an American-Australian uh, working in China, uh, traveling the world trying to explain the Huawei story. So we'll get to the Huawei story in a, in a little bit, but what was it about the job that, that made you say yes? What was it that interested you and, and, and perhaps excited you? I think uh, there are so many misconceptions that I had about Huawei and the more I dug, the more I learned that they were truly that erroneous, um, that this is one of the world's largest employee-owned companies. It's um, uh, a 30-year-old startup that was founded right after China opened up its economy. Uh, it's involved in setting up infrastructure that connects the world in 170 countries. And there never were any sour notes or red flags during all of my research. And uh, prior in my career, I had always been trying to explain uh, multinational corporations into China. And suddenly I had an opportunity to take the Chinese story to the rest of the world because I feel it's a country that people have a lot of preconceptions about, and they're not always fact-based. So I have an opportunity to help a company that is uh, truly changing the world through communication and assist it with its profile. And how easy or difficult has that been? First of all, in terms of being um, a Westerner, so American slash Australian, uh, working in a Chinese company, and secondly, I suppose, bringing that kind of mindset uh, in terms of corporate communications um, to a company and indeed to an industry and perhaps even to a country that is maybe not as accustomed to that kind of thinking. Um, I think I had the most to change 
Um, and one of the things I found to be successful in cross-cultural communication, you really need to find a way to neutralize your own cultural preconceptions. And therefore, I kept viewing and processing information through the cultural filters that were an East Coast New Jersey boy who'd spent a bit of time in a pretty posh liberal arts college and traveling the world and thought he knew what the world was when it turns out I really didn't. Um, so some of the challenges, um, I remember when I first started, a friend of mine at the New York Times gave me a book called The First 90 Days, How to Make a Great Impression in Your First 90 Days. And I think at Huawei they would actually retitle the book Year Two because in the first year they don't expect you to make an, a difference. They expect you to just learn how Huawei gets business done. And that patience and that calmness and that ability to you know, um, plan for the longer term has been a real eye-opener for me. And now I work with uh, our agency. We're here at Ogilvy Public Relations. And I'm working with them on incredible deadlines, but at the same time saying, let's make sure we're working on this program for the long term. So uh, those were some obvious lessons. And then there are, of course, the day-to-day -day cultural lessons. I um, am not native Chinese. Uh, my Mandarin is average or below average. Um, and yet I still have the ability to absorb uh, an entire new nation and way of doing business because working for a company with its headquarters in China is very different from my experience having worked for American or European companies. And not, not to, to labor this too much, but um, how, I, th I feel like our listeners would be interested to, to learn of the, the, some of the other differences perhaps in terms of working for a company that's headquartered in, in China. Um, because we're so used to the Western view of, of everything, of news, um, of politics, of media. Um, how, do you, how do you characterize the differences between, for example, a company that's based in China uh, and that's one, one that's based in, in the US, uh, and in particular, perhaps, how it approaches corporate communications? Well, let me start with the individual because uh, we in the West have grown up with the Socratic method of teaching and philosophy, which centers on the individual and it's all about yourself. Whereas you come to China and the founding ethical framework is Confucianism, uh, which is a philosophy, not a religion. It's an ethical framework. And Confucianism uh, focuses on the uh, group, the community, and the society. And so you take someone who's fabulous from a public relations agency who's a senior consultant, and they're used to being the star in the center of attention. And you go to a company where the community, the company, the work unit are more important than the individual, and you are a person as part of a team. I mean, seriously, a large team. There are 180,000 people at Huawei. And you're one of the people who helped deliver that. And if you're successful, then you have removed yourself from the process so that the process can continue even if you're not there. So you have to build yourself kind of out of a job. So it's that sense of community and the sense of importance. So uh, the thing I like about that is that leads to uh, enhanced collaboration where, every, uh, where you're working as a member of a team, you're working together but you're still getting results yourself, but when the results come in, they're part of the team's results. So you have to uh, suppress your id, your ego, and uh, get along with being a member of a much larger collective. So let's talk a little bit about Huawei itself, because as you mentioned, uh, you know, that there have been some preconceptions about the company internationally. There have been some issues that have, uh, I guess, colored perceptions of it, especially in, in, in the West. Um, what have you been doing to uh, change Huawei's international positioning? I mean, from where I'm sitting, the company seems to be doing pretty well. Uh, certainly in, from, a, from a business perspective, it's doing in, in, uh, extremely well. Um, but how have you been changing perceptions? Okay, let me just um, do a 30-second infomercial on what Huawei is. This is the company that 
founded 30 years ago, private company that builds telco infrastructure. Uh, today, a lot of people think they know Huawei because they have seen their smartphones or they might carry one around or see the advertisements. That's about 25% of our revenue. Uh, last year, Huawei did, reported 75 billion US dollars in revenue, a 34% growth on the previous year. We uh, are in 170 countries, and in most of those countries, we build the infrastructure. Now, how are we telling the story, and what are some of the things we're doing that will help shape the communications? Uh, I've, uh, one of the preconceptions that when you come to China and you're dealing with a China company is that there's a lot of secrecy, that there's um, an opaqueness to the company. And what one of the first things we're focusing on is just trying to, as much as we can, share the story with as many people as we can. Now, Huawei never even undertook media relations until about seven years ago, because it was only doing B2B. Uh, and then it opened the door to international media. Now, since I've come on board, we've started a program, so an example of which is the international key opinion leaders, where we work with people who have a really high profile in social media, but are not journalists, are not analysts, and we provide them backstage passes to everything Huawei does, and no matter what we say, no matter what we do, no matter what we share, it's all on the record, and I want them to share that as widely as possible. So you bring people into our world headquarters in Shenzhen and tell them that everything they see they can tweet, everything they can put up on Snapchat. We want them taking YouTube videos, flying their drones over the property, and they share that, and they share that with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And it's creating this atmosphere that, you know, this is a company that's very willing to discuss anything. Now, you alluded to challenges that have occurred in other countries. Uh, we were the subject of a 2012 congressional hearing that recommended Huawei not be used by U.S. carriers. In the end, we were the unlikely beneficiary of the Snowden email leaks, which said that the NSA had no proof of those findings. And a subsequent full security review by the UK government found there was absolutely nothing to be concerned about with Huawei tech. So in some ways, we're always going to be in the middle of any geopolitical issues that might occur between nation states, but we do our best to dampen that through active, open, transparent communications that just provides as many people as possible exposure to the story. Um, and yes, there are some negatives in there, there are some things that have happened, but we can talk about those um, in a very frank and open manner. Uh, and I think that, dis I don't want to say it disarms people, but it's a little bit, you know, people are pleasantly surprised uh, to find that level of candor uh, coming out of a, uh, any company, especially a company that's as large as we are. Indeed, yes. So let's talk a little about the Key Opinion Leader Program, um, or the COLs, as I like to call them. So, you know, the, to influence a management, is, it's a very popular topic on, on the public relations circuit these days. Um, I'd be interested to know how you guys came up with the, um, the program itself, how you've determined who the right opinion leaders are and how you kind of measure the effectiveness of the work that you're doing. Arun, uh, I do know a lot of people are interested in key opinion leaders or influencers. Uh, and there are some differences, differentiators with the Huawei program. First and foremost, this is not a consumer program. While we do work with key influencers on the consumer side, uh, the predominant focus is on the corporate reputation side. So we're reaching people who are uh, have an audience of business leaders, uh, technology, CIOs, CTOs, etc. The program differs in the sense that we're not paying these key opinion leaders to write their articles, so they're not getting pa paid per tweet or per pound of coverage. Instead, what we're doing is we're measuring the relationship we have with these key opinion leaders over a period of time, and we believe the more we engage with them, the more likely they are to be positively predisposed to Huawei. So we invite them to conferences, we invite them to Huawei events, and we will pay their business class airfare and put them in five-star hotels. And I will take them while they're there to see something else. When we were in Barcelona after 
three exhaustive days at Mobile World Congress, I took them on a private tour of Montserrat. Uh, in advance of the um, Mate 10 launch in Munich, I'm taking them to the Disney castle just in Bavaria. Um, so that way they feel they're being well looked after and we've created a community and a friendship. I think when you're working with influencers, it's important to feel uh, an ability to say what, say everything on the record, uh, share everything transparently, uh, and not create divisions where you've got some who are flying business class, some who are flying economy class, some in a two-star hotel, some in a five-star hotel, where you're treating everyone uh, equally and with community. And we've expanded the program. We've got KOLs who are in New Zealand and Nigeria, uh, Pakistan and Poland, uh, Portland, Oregon, <laughs> and New York City and Nairobi. Uh, and that's really exciting for me. And what I've been uh, most excited, most interested in is to watch the connections between this community that has created a, a tighter bond with Huawei because they feel we're the facilitators of them creating uh, an engagement amongst themselves and with their community. And what did you learn from working with them about the way Huawei is perceived? First off, it, Arun, just a side note for any communicator, you work with people in social media and you learn how to speak quick and how to know that every single word is on the record. And so therefore there's no rewind button, no edit button, um, and no opportunity to take things back. Uh, and that's really an unusual uh, skill uh, to be 24 seven with these people and know every single word is on the record. And I've, I've had meetings, video logged and, you know, podcasts and audio casts and YouTubes and it's always on and you just get used to that. Uh, what did I learn about Huawei? I found that the further people explored in Huawei, the more they were invited in. And there's, I've, there are clearly going to be boundaries when it comes to proprietary research or uh, we don't allow phones, uh, we don't allow cameras into our manufacturing facilities when we're producing, um, you know, state-of-the-art smartphones. But otherwise, there's very, uh, there's very little that isn't shared within Huawei. And I like that. I like the, the company's resilience to uh, people who have uh, very prying eyes and its ability to keep offering up. And so uh, that's taught me a lot about Huawei. And also I think the, the other point I mentioned earlier is that we're looking at this program over years um, and not over days or, um, I've heard of other KOL programs where people are told you have to issue six tweets before noon, you have to have at least three photographs on Instagram today, you know, we need uh, a video uploaded by this length at this time, and that's all put out in the contract. And instead I tell people, look, come to our event, share what you feel your audience would find relevant, and at the conclusion, write an article about the experience, about Huawei, anything you've, anything you've seen, um, and I would just want to fact check that, um, otherwise we're not going to editorially control anything you publish, and uh, to date it has not, uh, we've not had negative coverage at all coming out of these uh, KOLs, so that's been a, a, a real learning. You must get tough questions though, these are people that are not, um you know, they're not used to taking guidance, I imagine, right? They're all kind of entrepreneurially minded, self-starting opinion leaders. So you must get tough questions. I mean, do you still get questions, for example, about ownership? And uh, how, how have you been able to deal with, I guess, questions that maybe might make other companies uncomfortable? Arun, we get um, a lot of tough questions. It was interesting being at CES uh, in Las Vegas when we were launching a top quality phone and we you know, it was 11 p.m. and I'm getting phone calls about cybersecurity questions and um, thankfully every question that I've had I'm able to reference back to uh, published reports and articles uh, many times by some of the world's leading media. So that shows how this complements our media relations effort. You mentioned ownership um, and I think that was a, a yesteryear issue at Huawei if I might. Uh, say so because uh, about two years ago we invited the Financial Times and we opened up our Blue Book shareholder registry. They did a very good 
article which confirmed that the single largest shareholder in Huawei is our founder, Mr. Ren, and he owns 1.3% of the company. The rest he has gifted to the employees. So if you um, Google Financial Times Huawei shareholder, uh, you'll see that article, um, and I feel that having an authority like the Financial Times validate uh, a, a tricky issue gives us a base stone to be able to go back to and say, look, there's that issue covered. Or if you're looking at things like cybersecurity and U.S. congressional inquiries, there are articles on that. So, you know, probe, uh, uh, please, uh, we welcome it. Uh, because I think that's part of the magic at Huawei, which is the ability to, to confront the most challenging issues and recognize that, you know, they've been dealt with and we, we deal with them on a uh, daily basis. I mean, I don't think it's common for any company, not just a Chinese company, to actually welcome uh, being probed in that manner. So it's, it's good to hear. Um, it's something that we've been covering for several years now, uh, the efforts of China Inc. Uh, to make its mark globally uh, and the challenges that have uh, that persist in some respects. And I know you're not a, a spokesperson for China Inc. per se, although sometimes it appears that you are when I see you at international conferences. Um, but do you think that when you're talking about these big Chinese companies like Huawei, like Alibaba, they get unfairly criticized um, in Western markets, particularly in the U.S., simply by virtue of being Chinese? I um, am always very happy to be a spokesperson for Huawei, and I can't speak on behalf of other companies, and um, goodness gracious, I don't believe I'm a spokesperson for China, Inc. Um, that's a little bit beyond even my swollen head. Um, however, um, I am culturally curious, and that draws me into roles such as working for a major China company. And I find that even years later after, I mean, the first time I came to China was 25 years ago, that I still have some really deeply ingrained misconceptions, preconceptions that come from being a child of the Cold War, um, and that kind of uh, habit of needing an enemy or needing somebody who's different and understanding that there are people in that country and others who grew up also needing an enemy and someone who's different and yet the more you spend time with people the more you realize that they care about what they're cooking for dinner that night and if their kids are getting a good education and whether the you know, these pants make my ass look big. You know, I mean, they were all the same. And so when I am, you know, speaking about uh, China and Huawei, I start by just trying to uh, let people understand that, yes, it's a big, vast country, and it's growing very fast. But in the last, you know, 40 years of the economic experiment, you know, China has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty um, and grown very fast. Um, and that's, I think that scares a lot of people even in China, you know, how rapidly the country has grown. So um, I, I think I forgot the question, but I have gone on a long uh, little bit of a rant about, you know, how opening your mind up to other cultures may prove beneficial uh, to your business or your own growth? Yeah, no, um, it, it wasn't a, a rant, I don't think. But, uh, I mean, I totally agree. I feel like as someone who's lived in various places, we have much more in common um, than we have that divides us. I guess the question was really more about whether you see um, an unfair level of scrutiny for Chinese companies, um, especially in the US and, and maybe in the UK, whether you see that changing um, uh, during your kind of work at Huawei, and, uh, and if not, how you think it, it can be addressed? Well, um, Huawei began its business in 
China, obviously, and then expanded through Asia Pacific and uh, through Africa. Uh, today, it's got quite extensive operations throughout Europe. Um, and in fact, um, uh, we're significant suppliers to BT, British Telecom, as well as other carriers uh, across Europe. Uh, and we found that Huawei's uh, technology, research, development, and its commitment to open systems is very welcome and well-received in uh, almost every country. Uh, we do not today have um, extensive operations in the U.S. Uh, we have our enterprise business, and we did at CES launch our Mate 9 uh, flagship phone in uh, the U.S. market, which is available through Best Buy. But the majority of Americans will buy their handset through their carrier, uh, and so um, until we uh, form uh, that kind of alliance, uh, I think the U.S. will remain kind of a smaller market for us. Uh, it's interesting for me as an American to see a company that is growing 35% uh, year on year and still has negligible business in the U.S. market. So it shows that there's a big world out there and there are opportunities. Um, and in the countries where we are in Europe, uh, whether that's the UK, France, Germany, uh, Huawei's very well received and hasn't um, faced any of the issues you've mentioned. Uh, and so we feel that you know the more we partner with companies and countries, the more we explain ourselves, the better off we all are. Yeah, I think the reason I brought this, this point up is it's something I'd, I'd actually previously discussed with um, an executive from a, from another Chinese uh, company, I think it was Alibaba, actually. Um, I suppose maybe another way of asking it is, do, does it surprise you to see a level of sometimes even hostility in the way that the US media uh, reports on Chinese companies? Arun, I'm old enough not to be surprised. Um, I'm... Um, also old enough uh, to be, I suppose, disappointed, um, and also um, wise enough to understand that that will continue long after uh, my retirement and perhaps long after my son's retirement. I think that uh, there are just some uh, cultural differences that are so significant. We also look at China. I mean, it, it, this is the first non-Judeo-Christian empire since the Holy Roman Empire to come and it is um, not, it wasn't a rebuild after the wars in Japan or Korea. Uh, so China somehow managed to rise to international prominence without the assistance of the United States um, and with a very deeply different political, um, social, religious framework that makes it just odd. I mean, it's not a country that a lot of folks in the U.S. have spent a lot of time in. Um, and so, uh, clearly, uh, I grew up in a small town called Flemington, New Jersey, and I always was distrustful of the kids from Somerville, and that was the town next door. Uh, you know, they were only 10 miles away, but, you know, you couldn't trust those Somerville kids. So, you know, I think as uh, animals were hardwired to uh, question what we don't know. Now, I'm sure Somerville has some very fine residents, but I have yet to prove that. Well answered. I, I hope um, some of these changes happen quicker than, than you're forecasting. Um, but yeah, I, I suspect we're talking about a, you know, a level of, of, of ignorance and, of course, these kind of hardwired uh, cultural mindsets. Um, Can I just say one sure. Sorry, Arun, you said the word ignorance, and I just want to um, uh, just mollify that, only because I think that it's um, uh, a great example of why communicators are needed. Um, and even with artificial intelligence and augmented reality and whatever the future holds, there's still going to be a role for great communicators who are able to help people understand and explain things. And perhaps that's the greatest uh, role we can undertake, which is helping overcome 
lack of information so that people are making fact-based decisions versus just going based on what they heard or what a friend of a friend said on Facebook. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're helping people understand. And again, what I've been pleasantly surprised with is the more you share, the more people understand and the more um, empathetic and the more friendly they are. Well, we hope, but in this era of fake news, who knows? Um, if fact-based arguments really will win the day. And that's for any company, I think. So very quickly, before we finish, um, you, you just mentioned um, big advances in, in areas like AR and AI. You were on stage at our conference last week in Hong Kong speaking very eloquently um, about some of the advances that Huawei is ushering in in terms of artificial intelligence. Um, tell us about our new robot overlords. You know, it's... Um, uh, not Skynet, so please don't panic. Um, what I think we'll see in the near future is the uh, ability for uh, companies to use all of the data that's available today that's out there in terms of our preferences, the sites we visit, to be able to then mass customize information. So, you know, I see you're wearing a very natty flannel shirt, but uh, you'd never catch me in that check. But I think AI would know that. Um, and it would continue to recommend the kind of um, uh, smart, casual, contemporary clothing you're wearing while sticking with more of the conservative style for me. Um, yet, when we think forward, there are some roles within communications that are going to disappear. I mean, I think that uh, press releases and basic news stories can, basically, can be taken over by AI very quickly because they know how to write, they know how to uh, voice edit that for YouTube. Uh, and also yet we'll see then the additional demand for our services is people have augmented reality, which basically means I'll put on a pair of specs, look out into the audience, and be able to tell the LinkedIn profiles of the different people that I'm connected with because facial recognition and their, their, their permission to give that to LinkedIn. Uh, and there, I'll want some more applications and some more um, communications that haven't been invented yet. I was riding on the MTR in Shenzhen between my house in Hong, Hong Kong and my job, and the entire interior of one of the carriages was taken over with clash of clans advertising. And I thought, wow, you know, five years ago, did we think there would be a business selling apps? So there are new industries that will come and new jobs for communicators. And my 13-year-old son, when he's working and I, uh, you know, in 20 years time, he'll be working in an industry we've never heard of, uh, but that's uh, facilitated uh, by the technology that Huawei and other companies are inventing today. Well, interesting stuff, and I would, I would, um, I'd also say, you know, don't necessarily rule out this check. I think, you know, it might, might look good on you. Um, <laughs> Uh, but Walter, thank you so much for your time. It's a real pleasure. I've been wanting to get you um, onto this podcast for a while now. So thank you very much. Uh, hopefully we'll see you at our Provoke 17 Summit in Miami, if you can make it. Uh, but if not, perhaps we'll get you back on the show uh, sometime soon anyway. Thank you very much, Arun. And as a, you asked me earlier, what was it about this role that intrigued me? And I feel that being at the cusp of technology, telecommunications, China, <laughs> world growth, the internet, um, where better place to be uh, perfecting uh, the art of corporate communications and I very much appreciate the opportunity to be on your show and look forward to seeing your uh, guests in Miami. This is Arun Sudhaman uh, from the Homes Report. Um, I'm actually recording this one from Hong Kong, but my guest today is Alex Brownsell, a, a journalist who is based in London. Alex, welcome to the Echo Chamber. Thank you very much. Uh, so you're joining us from London, and, and you're on today's show after writing a very well-received feature for us entitled, Have We Reached the End of Brand Purpose? We'll talk about that more in a second. Before that, I wonder if you could just maybe give us a little intro in terms of who you are, uh, what, what you have been doing, and what you're doing now. 
sure. Yeah. So um, I, I am a uh, journalist sort of specialising in the areas of marketing, advertising and, and media particularly. Um, historically, I've um, held a, a number of roles at titles in, in that sort of field. I've been news editor and digital editor uh, uh, at Marketing Magazine and most recently was editor of uh, M&M Global, which is media and marketing uh, global and I'm, I'm currently uh, working on a number of various projects on freelance basis. I always forget that we're both ex-Haymarket, um, <laughs> but I guess it's, it's, it's DNA that's quite easy to find, isn't it? Many people, it is. many people in this line of work are ex-Haymarket. Um, yes. we, will, we will leave it at that. Um, we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about your excellent feature, which you wrote for us, um, about the end of brand purpose. And I guess um, what kind of triggered this, at least from our perspective, and the reason we came to you and asked you to, uh, to put this together was, were, were some of the trends we were seeing, um, particularly at Cannes, where there were so many awards being given out to um, campaigns that were either driven by CSR or cause marketing or about addressing some sort of a need in society rather than just selling stuff. Um, and I mean, from your perspective uh, as, as editor at M&M Global, for example, was that a trend that you had noticed as well? What, yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, having taken part in, in a number of different awards in, in the advertising and, and marketing space, I think over the last five years, you've definitely seen a a ramping up of the number of entries that were focused around, as you say, sort of CSR, sustainability, kind of societal issues, um, you know, and, and, and I, I can almost sort of picture and, and hear the entry videos now, usually with some quite nice sort of saccharine music and, and, you know, lots of happy people by the end of the, <laughs> by the end of the clip showing how the brand has sort of made this enormous difference to people's lives. And, and it, it had, it started to reach a point, I think, where, um, juries were being very quickly, very positive about these kinds of, of campaigns. Um, and it, discussion we certainly had was, was whether, the campaigns themselves were somehow, um, I think the, the, the term I use in, in the feature is actually supercharged. You know, the creativity has been augmented by mm. this extra layer of, of worthiness, if you like, of purpose. Mm -hmm. Or if there was just something innate to us that we sort of think, oh, well, you know, that's, that's quite nice, isn't it? Because they're sort of, you know, they're being, they're being contributing to society. So, so maybe we should give them the award. And, and it's, it's been quite hard, I think, for a lot of um, people that run these awards to sort of work out what exactly psychologically is happening with juries. But it's, it's definitely been a huge shift. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because it does seem like this work makes jurors feel good about themselves mm. and so they like to award it um, and of course the cynic in me says is that why these campaigns are um, are becoming more and more popular is that why marketers are spending money on them and agencies who are not averse to winning awards um, mm. are shifting so much resource behind this type of work is it just because they are looking to bring home more metal yeah well I Certainly, from from the agency perspective, I, I would suspect that that is that is the case. From from the perspective of of the brands themselves, I think there is there's certainly been a a case over the past couple of years that that brands that may be latched onto the idea of purpose fairly early, and and they may be brands that that were close more closely aligned with this area anyway you know particularly if you're in the third sector for instance or if um you've had a, a long-standing um csr program that that you've then decided to sort of pluck up the courage to talk about from an external communication perspective i think then a lot of advertisers who who haven't had that background or that heritage in in kind of uh were you know worthy sort of societal activity thought well well maybe we, we should we should get a piece of that action as well um and i think that's sort of what has brought us to the past year or so 
where we've had a flood of, of, of frankly, slightly ill-advised forays into brand purpose by by companies who who can't back it up. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and the obvious one is, is obviously the, the Pepsi uh, Kendall Jenner mm-hmm. monstrosity um, where she solved the world's geopolitical problems by handing a can of soda mm. to a slightly overheated police officer. Um, we, may, we may soon have to try that, given the, <laughs> way, given the way the world's going. Who knows? <laughs> exactly. Mm. But yeah, you make, I mean, it's a great point. I think, uh, so Pepsi was, I mean, do you think it was a wake-up call? I, I think it was, it was a clear warning to any brand that that thought that um, that brand purpose and and certainly the the, the sustainability under brand purpose was sort of effectively a, a buffet service where they could go and help themselves to a bit of okay well let's help some poor people here let's help the environment here and and maybe you know let's let's you know push forward uh, some you know um, LGBT cause for instance you know that the the issue being I think a lot of brands just felt like these causes were there ready for them to sort of instantly become champions of and therefore benefit as a result. And, and mm. the huge backlash um, against Pepsi's ad, I think, will have, will have put certain marketers off that were thinking that this was, um, was, was a sort of freebie. Right. Um, you, you mentioned in, in, the, in the feature, if we just backtrack a little bit, the influence of a book by former Procter & Gamble mm-hmm. chief marketing officer, Jim Stengel, um, and his book, uh, I think it's called Grow, uh, yes. which, which was, I think, quite influential in terms of connecting a brand with a cause. Um, mm. Is this what he had in mind? No, I mean certainly not. Certainly not the the um, the Pepsi example, or, or indeed, I mean there was another one I mentioned in the feature, which was. Um, McDonald's. Um, I believe it was just a UK campaign where um, mm. the uh, the family depicted uh, in in the in the ad. Um, it was it was a mother and her son. Uh, the father had passed away, um, and um, he this sort of you know child coming of age was trying to sort of find a connection to his sadly deceased father, and and the. Uh, the, the kind of payoff at the end of the ad was that he realised that both he and his he and his late father really loved a fillet of fish and McDonald's, which, um, frankly, you know, belittled the the idea of family bereavement to almost sort of uh, comic degree. Mm. Um, I think I think what Jim Stengel had in mind was the idea that if a brand understood its role within the world and within society and that role needn't be to do with, you know, providing um, homeless shelters or, or, or um, uh, you know, um, re- replanting the rainforests. Mm. It, it could simply be, um, and actually, um, one of the examples we, we talk about in a positive way in the piece was, uh, it was another can winner, it was uh, Whirlpool, mm. um, their Care Counts campaign, which, um, you know, these guys make washing machines, you know, they're not, they're not saving the world, but... In a lot of um, disadvantaged areas, and this is particularly in the United States, uh, kids couldn't get their clothes, their school uniforms cleaned. Um, and as a result, through embarrassment or social stigma, we're, we're no longer coming to school. And that was obviously, you know, a vicious cycle in terms of underachievement and, 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 and poverty. So, you know, they provided washing machines for schools. Yes, there's there's a nicey nicey element to that but but it was totally relevant and in keeping with the brand the brand provides the means by which you can clean your clothes they weren't trying to play outside of an area that was irrelevant for them and i think what jim stengel very much was alluding to is as a brand understand what you do Mm. if there are ways that you can demonstrate that 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 maybe do tug at the heartstrings then i think what we have seen is that isn't such a bad move for marketing directors and CMOs yeah but it's about playing within a field of relevance yeah. and you're a soft drink maker suggesting that you have any input or or role to play in uh, the great political struggles of our time is um, 
well, it's daft, and they mm. they sort of deserved everything that came their way afterwards. Yeah, it's interesting because you wrote the feature. I mean, as befitting of your background, I guess, um, from 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 the perspective of the CMO, the marketer, mm. um, the idea of purpose and and cause marketing, CSR, even has has inextricably been linked to public relations and corporate communications mm. departments for a long time because you know it's kind of it's it's the soft bit that you know it's 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 something you you often see as, as an easy way to build uh, relationships between companies and people um, but what the way you've just been describing um, the importance of relevance and so on um, it does indicate the I guess balancing act for marketers who are tasked with selling product, with generating sales and revenue, um, and then using, I suppose, uh, purpose as one of the vehicles by which they do this. Um, and I, I, I guess the question is whether you feel that's a different, a difficult, sorry, balancing act for CMOs to pull off. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it certainly is. Um, and in particular, in the light of obviously, you know, the backdrop to all of this is digital, um, and 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 the sort of pace at which um, an idea can either positively or, or, or negatively spread um, through through the world. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I'm sure took Pepsi aback was the sheer scale and uh, a pace of the backlash against them um mm. and and I, I think what you what you probably see a lot of the time from marketers certainly i mean you know I, i've been writing about marketing for over a decade now and, and in my experience marketing directors are inherently cautious <laughs> beasts you've never um, dealt with communications directors <laughs> in well, that case well, well quite but, but I, I think that you know that I, I, another sort of key element to all of this is that the average tenure of the chief marketing officer is it, has been coming down year on year and I think I believe mm. the most research certainly in the United States suggests that it's it's kind of around the two two and a half year mark mm-hmm. now within a period of, of 24 months you're, you're not gonna be able to completely instill a, a sense of purpose so any purpose that that is there that you're bringing to the fore is, is going to be a, con, a continuation of 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 what was what was there before either that was was publicly um communicated or, or not um and actually, this comes brings us quite nicely to the the State Street um, fearless girl example, mm-hmm. which um, it, here you had a company, uh, an asset management company, which um, had brought forwards over over a period of years a number of innovations to do with the way that it invested its clients' money um, into particularly organisations that it that fit fitted against a number of its checklists through a sort of asset stewards stewardship program and that that had to do with the level of gender diversity at board level to do with the company's um sustainability policies to do with diversity as, as a whole um they've been doing that for a little while um and stephen tisdale the chief marketing officer that we, we spoke to for the piece joined the company actually less than a year ago mm-hmm. he uh, observed that all of this had been going on but hadn't been talked about and his rationale that he he kind of communicated to us was that he believed that a the the organization had had a right to be talking about this because they were to to quote him directly putting their money where their mouth was um but also um he believes that this focus on purpose and the sort of broader brand credentials were actually going to provide a cutting edge in a profit sense as well so you know the example he he gave was that if if state street and a couple of other asset management companies are all pitching for the same piece of business you know pension fund or whatever it may be um 
they believed that that double take moment oh stage three oh yeah those those are the guys that did fearless girl mm. he believes that that will get them onto shortlists and help them with their new business prospecting even in a b2b context um uh, and that you know and, and and it's a long play and i'm sure that the roi measurement on that is really tricky mm-hmm. um but I think that for, for, for marketers like Stephen Tisdale and, and, and certainly also Diageo that we spoke to for the piece as well, they firmly believe that a combination of a, a base coat of a distinctive purpose that consumers can identify with, overlay that then with more tactical, more product, more strategic communications will is the ideal combination. Um, and I, I mean, personally, I feel like very few companies have got that optimum combination right um you know i think i think unilever in parts is is a very good example i think you Uh know dove has done a tremendous job of of linking its cause with um you know beauty and real beauty and then you know if you combine that with some savvy new product development and some you know some good pricing and advertising then then that would that would explain why that product has done so well, but it's it's a really hard thing to pull off. Yeah, and as you write in the future, um, there's always this risk of of backlash, as mm. as you've just mentioned. I mean, I mean, you, you say as Fearless Girl, for example, gathered mm. international fame, controversy inevitably followed. Um, State Street was subject to numerous questions about its own diversity policies. Some took umbrage with the company's plaque promoting its she fund. Um, and I, I remember seeing a reasonable media backlash. Um, how did Brands manage that? How did Tisdale um, himself manage that? Um, he's, he's, quite, um, he's quite phlegmatic about it now, but I, th- I think it presumably, the whole thing I think came as a huge shock to them. A, the... Hmm. Um, uh, the, the 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 sort of rate at which it, it spread and the the social numbers in in the billions certainly took them by by surprise. I think they were expecting it to be quite a niche, one week, very focused sort of B two B type installation. Um, I don't think they had any idea that it would gather the level of fame it did, and then that presumably left them a little unprepared for the questions that were going to going to come back to them. But I mean he. It's, it's always difficult to sort of when you talk to talk to a marketing director and and when the way that they sort of I guess rationalize things from a from a six months on perspective um, the way that the way that he kind of puts it is that you know they um, no, were never pretending to be perfect and that you know that they believe they're on the journey and they're celebrating the journey and, and um, they have every right to sort of talk about the fact that they are they believe making positive strides um, but I, I think in general, um, if if you are going to go down this path, then you you need to understand that that success will bring a, with it a large degree of scrutiny, mm-hmm. um, and um, you just need to have your answers ready. Uh, and and by by the sounds of it, I think State Street didn't quite have those answers ready immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my interpretation. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, <laughs> Pepsi certainly didn't have mm. uh, any strategy in place for, for what happened. Um, I, I, I think that um, that it's just about covering the angles, really. It, it seems sensible to me that if you're going to make a claim around a particular area, um, mm. as with anything nowadays, particularly with the way that things spread on social media, um, being celebrated and being fated is often just one side of the coin. There'll be the other side of the coin of people who disagree with you, people who will openly criticise you, and you should know exactly how you're going to handle that criticism. Mm. Yeah, good advice. Um, another, <laughs> another, another topic that's that's touched on in your feature is this idea of, of authenticity, which, um, if you look at it one way, has become Another, another of these very overused, I guess, marketing words um, that can mean yeah. a variety of things, right? 
Um, but from your perspective, what does it mean here when, when someone like uh, Rima Vassen from MSL, who was a mm. judge on the PR jury, she says, you know, the, the key to purpose-led mar- marketing is that it must be authentic, it must be deep-rooted in the brand's DNA and is consistent over time. What do you think that actually looks like in reality? Um, I think it's, again, it, it comes back to not straying too far away from the reality of, of your brand, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if you are a, a CPG, packaged goods manufacturer, um, you know, you need to ensure that you're not talking about things that, that, are, that are too far a stretch, you know, can washing powder really have a point of view on um, LGBT rights? I, d- I don't know. Probably mm. not. Mm. And um, whereas can, can you know, a soap brand have a perspective on global hygiene? Yes. Yes, that is, see, <laughs> it is an awful word, but that is authentic. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I think it's, 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 I mean, it's so logical, really, that, that mm-hmm. you do sort of wonder how some of these companies get themselves into such binds by, by trying to overstretch. Um, yeah, that's a good point. It actually kind of makes you think, well, how do they come up with the, the purpose? How do they choose their purpose? Because it's not always logical, is it? Um, no. I, th- I think there is an element of chasing the sort of topic du jour. And, you know, the one actually that, that, um, that, that, that Rima Vassan did point out as one of her sort of favoured campaigns, which I... I, I I wasn't so sure about was um, I think a Danish travel company online travel company called Momondo. Oh yeah, um, DNA Journey. Exactly. So that you oh. know that the whole question in in this sort of era, obviously, where we've had you know various migration crises and you know rise of nationalism in in various countries, um, this whole question of identity and um, uh, understanding those living in other parts of the world better it's 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 a hot topic and i can absolutely see why they went for it the idea that because you're booking a package holiday to you know mykonos is somehow (laughs) meaning that you're understanding the the precise nature of your identity and that of others is a little bit dubious but it and I think that that is a, and that that kind of lends itself to to why I think some of these topics get get selected because I think that you know often it will be someone with an organisation or within their agency says, hey, this is this is really important at the moment, and I I feel like you've got an angle on it. Yeah, it's just how tenuous that angle is. Yeah, I think a lot of those trips to Ibiza is a, it's a different <laughs> DNA journey. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay, well. I think, um, you know, it's, it's an area where I suspect we're going to see more and more missteps because, you know, if there's one thing uh, we can bank on, it's brands getting it wrong. Mm. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what the responses are, I guess, you know, because, you know, I, I suppose it, it comes down to whether purpose becomes so common amongst brands and so bland that, that people just stop taking notice of it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, that, is, that is certainly the danger. I think, you know, um, there, there's always an advantage for the early movers that, that move with um, uh, some sort of credibility. Um, uh, I think, you know, if you're three or four years down the line, do consumers have the room in their heads to understand what every single brand, you know, what, what every single brand has a purpose. Those that have been doing it for a long time have have the advantage. And, and I think purpose to a certain extent um, comes a little bit back to personality. I and mean, I understand why it's, it's, it's broader than personality because it, it has to do with the entire behavior as a company, as an organization. But, you know, if you're, uh, for instance, you know, one of the people we spoke to for the for the article was um, Simon Lloyd, who's been a global CMO until a couple of years ago at Virgin Atlantic, mm-hmm. which is a which is a company that pretty much since day one has had a 
personality, you know, and, if, and to, to speak in sort of, you know, modern marketing lexicon, a, a purpose that was that was around being a challenger around, you know, taking on the establishment. And those companies that have that long heritage in in an area will be able to continue and and, and consumers will understand that. I think if you're, um, you know, a, a, a manufacturer of, I don't know. Widgets. You know, widgets. Mm. <laughs> exactly. You know, the, the, the difficulty will be getting some sort of credible purpose off the ground in a way that consumers don't just sort of find utterly tedious. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, you're right. It is easier when you're Virgin and when your CEO is, is Richard mm. Branson, right? Precisely. Precisely. Um, okay. Well, Alex, thank you so much for your time. Um, thank you. And thank you for the story. I would urge everyone listening to, to go uh, onto our website to read it. Um, although, do be aware it's in our premium content section. So I'm not trying to just, you know, make a, a massive plug to sell it. But I, th- I think it's a it's a great story, uh, and and really relevant for the for the times we live in. Um, and Alex, I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll have you back on the Echo Chamber soon. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for having me. Great. Thanks. You can catch this episode uh, on all of the usual podcast players. Um, you can get in touch with The Homes Report on Twitter, on Facebook, on email. You can even phone us up. Um, a big shout to our sponsor, March Communications, and to our production partner, Marketeers. We'll be back with the Echo Chamber next week. Thank you all. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people.